I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with Albano Damanato from Studio Damanato, who's calling in to join us from Bangkok. For joining us on the podcast, Albano, how are you? I'm fine. That's a good question. These are not easy times. This is true. This is very true. Um, and you're based in Bangkok at the moment, which has been fairly up and down in the last 18 months, if I am yeah. uh, remembering correctly from afar. Very much so. Um, started off quite well, everything in control. Now, not so in control but it seems to be this shifting cycle globally. So yeah, we never know. It's very true. Expect the unexpected, as they say. Indeed. Well, I have to say, I'm quite excited to have you on the podcast. I'm really happy to be chatting. Um, this was actually a suggestion from a reader, but I'm, I'm kind of happy to have an excuse to have a catch up. Great. Um, I think you know Same. that I've been a fan of your work for a long time but I also feel very fortunate to be able to call you a friend and I think that that's something yes. that um, has developed over the last couple of years. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to be kind of picking your brains and finding out a little bit more and I wanted to start with actually the beginnings of your career because there's very little about you and your career uh, online. Uh-huh. I know that really? there's been more of a presence lately. Um, Is that deliberate or not, or am I just a bad researcher? No, no, and um, to go back to what you just said, I've always been so grateful that you've really seen my work and respected my work, because we've been a bit, I've been a bit of a quiet person myself, Um, and I'm more about just doing my work than doing public relations. Um, but it's been really great that you've been somebody there who's seen that and respected that. And I really appreciate that you've had that vision and what you've done with the publication and everything. Um, so there's that. Um, my early career, that's what you'd like me to hit at in the beginning. Yeah, I kind of want to actually go back to your childhood, if you don't mind, just going back. Wow, that far, because you—that's <laughs> a you long time Australia. ago. Yeah, it's not yes. that long ago. <laughs> yes. You grew up in Australia, but you've got Italian heritage. I, that I actually is want to correct. know. Yeah, where, how you think perhaps those two aspects of your life have influenced your decision to follow a career path into design? Do you think that it had an influence? Well. I don't know. My parents were very open to all of us as kids kind of doing whatever we wanted to do. Um, And my dad was very passionate at at whatever jobs he had. And my mum was very hardworking, of course. I think there was a real migrant thing in Australia. And I grew up in the 1970s as a kid. Um, But... We also didn't have the internet, of course, and barely TV at those at that at that point. And 
I spent a lot of time doing things creative, like my sister would laugh at this because we always talk about it. I used to do things like take a wheelbarrow in the backyard and I made a grotto out of cement in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> of course <you> did. <laughs> it had like a Virgin Mary in it. I filled it with seashells and, I, you know, it's that kind of stuff. That's adorable. Um, so I think from... Uh, this is a story that never goes away. It's always about my grotto. Um, <laughs> from an early age, I was clearly going to be doing things and making things. But my, my mother's father was like that. He was always making things. Um, so I think I came from a family that, you know, um, allowed that. Um, and I was always really into the arts, like whether it was um, kind of theatre or drama or dance and that kind of thing as a, as a young kid. I originally thought I would really go into theatre design. And when I was really young, I guess about 16, uh, 17, I applied to go to NIDA. Um, and I really didn't think I would get in because usually um, applicants get in much later in their life, like 2021, which is still young, but older. Um, and mm. I got in that year to do stage design and I moved to Sydney to do that. But I didn't, I had some problems when I was there in the beginning and I didn't stick it basically. Um, and I'd already applied to do a course in human environments design in South Australia. So I went back to take that on and somehow I really enjoyed doing that. I mean, the course in, in Adelaide at the time was very much a mixed course where you kind of did industrial design, graphic design, ceramics and interiors. So it was really about, you know, all types of design. And at that stage, again, we didn't have computers. Like it was only in my last year that people really started having computers. So I'm also really grateful, and still to this day, everybody laughs that I, I do not draw on a computer. Um, my <laughs> team do, of course. So I'm, I feel like a very antiquated person. Um, but um, that, was, that was how it kind of started. And then I finished that course, and I had won a scholarship, a travel scholarship, um, that was set up by an architecture company in Adelaide called Rod Roach. And uh, I was 18 and then went kind of on like a big European trip, which really kind of cemented my kind of thing about seeing design, understanding design, what architecture meant out, outside of Australia. And also traveling by myself at 18, which seems daunting mm. to me now, but somehow I did it. Um, and then I went back to Australia and of course I ended up very luckily um, at Burley, Kate and Halliday in Sydney. And I guess oh. that was in the late 80s. So I worked with David Caton and Ian Halliday. Um, incredibly grateful for that time. And what that's really taught me is this, this idea of really worthwhile mentorship when you work for people. Because I think no matter what kind of design or architecture education you've had, you do not learn what you really need to learn I mean and it also depends mm. where you study but to me I find you know I'm always joking about do you know how to detail a, a built-in bar fridge um, <laughs> or how to do a window frame or a door frame because sometimes these aren't even things that you would be taught because they'd be like why should we teach you how to design a door frame 
but mm. suddenly you're thrown into a career and, and, and your boss is like, well, you need to do all of this and don't you know? So um, at Burley's there was a really great learning experience and we still at that point we were all drawing by hand. So it was like sheets and sheets of tracing paper, scratching out your mistakes, repairing your errors and that whole thinking process um, and design process and the fact that design at that company was so crucial. And mm. they were obviously doing such important work at the time. Um, mm. And without that for me, I don't, I mean, obviously working with anybody is a two way street. So hopefully you're, you're adding to their work at the same time as learning from them. But I try and respect that now with my staff that, uh, that you kind of understand that not everybody knows everything and I don't know everything yet, even halfway through, you know, a hundred years. Um, so no one will ever know everything, but I think it's important that you're, uh, that, you know, people bring things to the table and what I used to like at somewhere like Burley's or later on when I was at Kerry Hill in, in Singapore was working with people that um, all bought ideas or it was more like an active contribution. Um, what's harder, I think, for me as you get older, and I think even my friend Richard Hassel would tell you this, is you kind of feel like you've gone, you've, you've become such a senior that you're not surrounded with people of, unless you work in a company where you have a lot of equals of your the same age, you become the person that's directing rather than also having contribution from your staff. And I'm always saying to my staff, it, it really push yourself, throw out ideas. And what, what I find amazing about the computer age is I feel that they're more scared to make mistakes, although it's easier to fix mistakes in a computer. Like if you draw something, mm. you can erase it immediately. But somehow, because for me, it's like sketch it, sketch it, sketch. I will sketch the same thing over and over again in different ways because for it, to design a bathroom, you can do a bathroom in hundreds of different ways. But I feel as though unless you've made that journey and understood, does this work, does this not work, I'm going to draw it again and again. No over the last 20 years, I've noticed that all of the younger, younger generation with computers is scared to attempt things because it's so finite on a computer. You can't even, like the, the, the minute you wanna draw a bathroom, they're, they're like saying, how thick is the material on the wall? And you're like, well, I don't know yet. That's not what a concept is. I haven't is. designed it yet. <laughs> so That's you so kind of, I, and, and what I, I mean, I have this love-hate relationship with AutoCAD because I feel like in the very beginning, it's, it wants you to talk about millimeters. Whereas to mm. me, you really want the romance of what you're doing, not how thick is this material on the wall, because I really don't know what it is just yet. Mm. Um, whereas they're I somehow forced into doing that to make a line. Like the minute they dedicate lines, it's like, it's this thick, it's, it's, it's sending you in a direction. And I feel like, is that stopping your brain from opening up doors rather than closing doors in your face? Mm. 
Yeah, I, I might actually come back to that in a second. I feel like there's a whole pathway of discussion that we could have about computers. But you just mentioned your Please, friend Richard yeah. Hassel. And yes, I know that you friend. two met while you were at Kerry Hill in Singapore. Um, mm -hmm. So you were alumni, I suppose, um, sure. along with a, a bunch of other people who've gone on to do fairly significant work. Um, sure. How did you end up in Singapore? Did you go from BKH in Sydney directly there? Was there somewhere in between? No, there was somewhere in between. Um, I wish I knew the timeline, but I get so old I forget years. Um, <laughs> what I do remember is that after BKH, and I think it was, was it? kind of very late 80s, early 90s, when Australia kind of had that financial nosedive. Um, I ended up doing some work in Adelaide with a company that was working on a university. So I did some interior design on universities and that was for a, maybe a year. And then I got a phone call from this gentleman called Kerry Hill, uh, completely by random one day, a phone call, not an email. Um, uh, telling me he was going down to Sydney uh, for some meetings and he wondered if he could meet me while down there. Um, so I went to meet Kerry at the Park Hyatt, I think, in Sydney uh, for the very first time. And I knew very little about Kerry at the time because that was about 1994. And um, I remember looking up a Vogue Living magazine and there was a one-page article on him and I kind of saw that they'd done some hotels and actually they'd done the Datai by then, which Richard had worked on. Um, mm. And he offered me this position in, in Singapore to go and kind of head up some hotels for Aman. And one of the very first projects was an Aman that was planned for Woolamaloo Bay um, mm. that then became another kind of hotel and another kind of hotel since. Um, but that was that was the original calling. And when I first went to Singapore, it was 1995. Um, and it was a bit of a culture shock for me because I'd never been there before. And if you know Singapore at all, well, you do, Susie. Um, mm. you, you, know, you, do know, you know the rapid change it's gone through from 1995 till now. It's almost mm. completely unrecognisable. And when mm. I got there, it was, it still to me had that real um, kick of being quite unique in terms of like this is an Asian experience and it took me my first year was like a bit like can I really I remember going to carry after six months and saying I think I have to leave um, <laughs> but then six months on in there there was talk of uh, uh, Rowena Hawkins and I actually she had just started at carry going down to Perth to, to head up the studio there so Rowena and I went down there and were basically the two staff down in Fremantle uh, running the new Carry Hill office down in Western Australia. And we were sent down there really, a bit like missionaries, um, to do the house we were doing uh, in Margaret River. Um, so we started down there doing that. And then of course now the office has grown and grown and I, don't, I think they have like 30 odd staff down in Fremantle. And the office in Singapore right. still continues. Um, so I was yes. down in Fremantle for maybe a year before going back to Singapore and then rolling on with all the kind of the Aman in Bhutan and Japan and, and that era. And so I'm really curious because I sadly never got to meet him and obviously uh, he, he obviously grew 
to become such an icon and an incredibly well-respected figure within the architectural community internationally. Um, what was Absolutely. he like to work with? And, and, you know, what did you learn from him? What would you say would be the most valuable lessons that you can sort of talk about taking away from that period of time? Um, I think at that time it felt as though, first of all, Kerry was very open to ideas uh, from the team as well. So it was a real respect between the both of us because he gave me a real, although yes, he was obviously the head of the company and all of that kind of thing. And he had the vision architecturally for what was going on. Kerry was a very, one of those very astute people that are excellent at hiring people. Um, so he had always had a really good team of people um, and he always respected ideas one might have had and we always tested. I mean, it was, in that way, what was great about Kerry is, and I'm very grateful for, which I've had in my whole career, is very um, design-driven um, companies. I mean, I, I'm glad that I haven't had to work in these companies that really it's about getting something pushed out. We need, you know, this many drawings out by the end of the week. And yes, that is still part of the re reality working anywhere, but there's proportions of of what is business and what is design. And at the end of the day, Kerry was very much about, we did care about the design and that does take a bit more time than when you don't. And you need the time to resolve design because the journey of doing any design really is about thinking and processing and going back and have I done this right? Could it be done another way? Uh, it's about that kind of experimentation and open-mindedness. And Kerry was very much about that. Like I could spend days designing a lantern for Bhutan or Japan. And in some offices, you'd be killed for doing that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it was really about the end product. And because we were doing things like Aman and because we were working with a visionary like Adrian Zecker, um, there was that kind of experimentalism it's like we don't adrian zecker didn't want his hotels to look like other hotels the furniture mm. the accessories down to the shampoo bottle i mean they were to be unique to each aman it wasn't about it being a hotel brand that you went from one to the other and they looked the same so mm. i think what what i relished in all of that was you really did get to design things and you really and because all of the projects were kind of in different places. It kind of, in a design way, without it being theatre design, you kind of were trying to put yourself in a place uh, and make a design of its place without it being Disneyland. Um, and that was always interesting because you're not doing the same thing every year. Mm. Um, so I would say... I don't know if I, I've answered your question about Kerry, but 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 it really yeah, is. You know, it was it, it was that that I I found really rewarding there. Yeah, and I was going to get to Adrian, so I'm glad that you brought him up um, because I I know that you uh, were still in touch with him somewhat recently, and yeah. obviously would have been working 
fairly closely with him and his team while working on those projects. And I, I'm curious to know, you know, what it is that you admire about him most, because uh, yeah, as you say, he was he's quite an icon or a legend and it's such an incredible partnership between he and Kerry Hill um, mm. in so many properties that, that were designed that obviously have your... Um, your sort of signature on as well that, that came out of that period of time that are, you know, likely never to be reproduced at that level of quality again. But um, mm, I agree. And now that and he's sadly. no longer the owner. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on hi- on him and working with him during that time. I mean, still now, I mean, I think he's now late 80s. Um, Adrian is such a powerhouse. Like I'd never, and obviously when you look back at his career starting in journalism and, and his life, you know, what his life, what he's, what he's achieved, um, he was very much a, a, free, a free thinker in the same, and I guess that's why he and Kerry got on so well because Adrian was very much, I think, um, things will be done the way I want them to be done or the way that is different from somebody else. Like, he never wanted TVs in the hotels. And he's like, well, I don't want TVs. I want people to come here and experience where they are. Um, mm. So he had these kind of ideas that were that were definitely not your typical hotelier, like the luggage rack needs to be this big and the minibar needs to be here. So he mm. just had this completely different way of seeing things and construct. And he was more about, I think, the Amans, I'm not speaking for him of course, but that it was more about them being something else and 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 having a real spirit of where they were and really about the people experience, which now has become a bit of a cliche in, in the travel industry and hotel industry, but it was really about great staff, great service. How do I get cared for when I'm at this place? How does it feel to me? Um, and Adrian was very much about, and yes, there was that exclusivity which came with it. Um, there was a high price to staying in them, but then you know, it was also about well, it was staff ratio to guest ratio. It was about how big is the room, um, how does the space feel, what are the details, what are the materials. Yes, we are going to make the crockery and the cutlery, especially for this project. Um, and he was he gave he gave Carrie a lot of freedom and he gave all of us a lot of freedom. And it was really I travelled a lot with Carrie and Adrian, well, when we were working on projects and it was always so fascinating. Because Adrian has obviously lived this life of, you know, meeting people and 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 making things work. Um, dealing with shareholders and companies and, and owners because they were owned in different countries. Um, mm. But he, he, and I think this comes back to something that is fundamental to me and, and young people today or anybody is passion, passion, passion. Um, I just think there's nothing without passion. And he mm. obviously has this incredible passion for what he did and the brand he made and just for being himself. And Kerry had a passion. And I just find that anyone who wants to learn or experiment or push something, um, it's all about passion. 
And if you have mm. no passion for your career or job, I always feel sad for people because I'm like, how are you doing this if you don't love it? I mean, I have days mm. where obviously now I'm like, God, I hate my job, I hate my career, I wish I'd done something else. But um, I think, I think without... I like that from time to time. Sure. But I think <laughs> if you have no passion for what it is you want to do, it, it makes anything really difficult, from whether you want to be a brain mm. surgeon to, to a painter. Mm. I could not agree more. So for me, I mean, that's what I really saw in, in people like Adrian. Mm. That's, yeah, that's such, that's, yeah, really lovely observation, actually. Uh, so I, I want to now talk about your practice because you departed from Kerry Hill Studio some time ago and you're now based in Bangkok and your practice, yes. Studio Daminato. We've published uh, mm -hmm. a number of projects over the years. Um, I, w I would like to hear a bit about your approach because it seems to me there is a real architectural rigour behind each of them um, and I'm, I'm mm -hmm. curious to hear a bit about whether that is always the starting point or whether inspiration uh, and your approach can perhaps differ from whether it is location or typology. How, can you talk us through a little bit about how you sure. start a project? Um, sure. Um, I guess what's fundamental to me and this this goes way back to my Burley Caton days, was um, planning, uh, space planning, uh, morphology of space, and, and, and understanding how space affects everybody. Uh, and to me, no amount of decoration or color or, or any add-ons will alter a bad plan. Uh, so it's very important to, to all of the projects that we do, and any clients that approach me get the same discussion uh, because a lot of a lot of people buy projects that may have existing interiors obviously they're not all new build um, mm. and we always I always say because it has to be part of my design work that we can only be involved in projects when it involves um, being able to manipulate the space um, I cannot ever fix something that is badly planned, in, in my own opinion. Um, or because the way that we start working is very much, the plan is also uh, going to dictate how materials may work. Um, so I'm going to go back to a bathroom because somehow the world of design then exists in bathrooms or kitchens to me. Um, like whether you put a bathtub next to a shower or the toilet next to the vanity, um, how do those materials, how do the heights, how do the proportions collide? And they are all things that need to be studied in the very beginning with a thought process going on like dull music in the background about what materials might these be? How will they meet each other? What junctions can I achieve with this material? Will this material be able to do what I need it to do? Uh, and then that applies to every single space you do. Um, so there's always a thinking about materiality at the very beginning of the design. Um, so yes, the material is also part of the concept, but it's also part of the way we plan because we know that some materials aren't going to do what 
that plan needs it to do. Um, so it's our concepts are very much, regardless of which country they're in, um, it's always a rigor for me on uh, getting the plan right, uh, making mm. it flow correctly from one space to another, making and understanding how people live in a way. And I guess in the, a lot in the last few years, um, my work has been residential. The studio has been doing residential work. Um, and that was mainly after the Amman projects because also there have been no hotel projects that I've wanted to be involved with because I guess <laughs> I've been a bit, I've been a bit spoiled. Been a bit spoiled. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, and then you realise that, well, other hotels don't work that way. And, uh, and residences bring their own challenges because uh, they're very personal. You're dealing closely with a person and the way they want to live. Um, and you have to go down to, like, absolute details. You're like, uh, am I designing your underwear drawer? Like, in some mm -hmm. projects, we're very, very specific about when we have to design people's living spaces. I mean, it's very personal. Chinin, who I work with in, in Bangkok, which is another career stage, um, mm. um, wrote something about me for a, a, a for the Australian, I think, um, where he said that he, I, that I understand how people live or how what kind of level or level of luxury people want to live in because in my own life I'm whether this is bad or good um, I'm a bit obsessed by beauty and and <laughs> design and being surrounded by things that I, I find beautiful or collect or um, and I think that way of living or that respect for surrounding yourself with peace and calm visually mm. because also I, I remember one of one of our biggest clients I mean biggest as in one of the largest projects we ever did uh, for a house came to us saying uh, they'd seen some of uh, they'd actually visited Bhutan and the wife of the client was like what I want is the peace meaning mm. it was that feeling of calm and that's always like I'm always like how many materials do I need in this room you know can I take it down to two materials can I leave it at three maximum can and you know some people might say is that all a bit bland because mm, you might think I don't use much color but I do use color when I want to use color but but it's about not distracting the eye, particularly in people's homes, because I feel like I want to go home and not be bedazzled. Um, like, <laughs> but bedazzled for me is, yeah, I might want to go to a, a, a nightclub or a, a cocktail bar or a hotel lobby or something, but I don't want to personally be bedazzled at home because to me it's really, it's a bit of a cliche, but it is your haven and it is an escape. Um, and I found mm. even more so during this pandemic that it, I'm mm. very fortunate to, you know, have been able to come back to an apartment that I'm happy being in, that is safe and feels calm um, without all of the hype that is beyond the interiors of how we live. 
And I think we've all mm. seen that our homes have become fundamental like escapes during this pandemic because we've all had to be stuck at home. Yeah, absolutely. So to me, to yeah. me, it's it's even shown people more than ever before that, and I think we, we've also seen from a furniture sales thing, and and people have suddenly realized realized, oh God, I'm at home so much. Um, I should do I care? Should I care about everything that the things that surround us? Um, so obviously, that's become more of an important thing that people have become aware of mm. yeah I, I would agree with that I'm glad you used the word calm because I think that's certainly something that I feel when I look at the spaces that you design um, and I'm glad that you also said collecting because that was something that I wanted to ask you about as well because anyone who perhaps has seen your Instagram account will know that you are a collector um, or a curator yes. or whatever other overused <laughs> word we can use. Um, I sure. wanted to ask you whether there's any kind of particular type of object that you're drawn to. Like how, how, do, you, how do you collect? Where does that sort of instinct come from, do you think? It's funny because I'm not, mm, I wouldn't ever say that I am a collector. Like I'm not an art collector or an object collector. But now I'm going to laugh because God help whoever has to deal with me once I'm dead, because um, <laughs> my, my nephews and nieces, no doubt. Um, I have, I guess it's this thing about having so much that you can see or, or touch or, or experience. And it's like, I can begin to say, like, I have this obsession with basketry. And, and I guess this has been my time in Asia and things that are handmade. Um, from mm. baskets, ceramics, um, handicrafts. I'm, I have a huge stack of fans sitting in front of me, like woven fans. Um, uh, books, just endless amounts of books. Uh, teapots, teacups, porcelain, uh, cutlery, crockery. I mean, they're, they're all things that also, whether they're like, designed by a designer in inverted commas or or that it's a craft um i have a real respect for that and i have a real respect for craftsmanship and for heritage and and where these crafts have come from so i really i really love that and i love people that love that too i mean in that terms of like layering because sometimes i mean I've always been asked about, well, you might be asked in an interview, what is, what, what, what's your style? Like, what's your thing? And, and I'm like, well, I can't label my thing because <laughs> I, I remember in the early days, it was always about minimalism and it was very John Pawson and, and was it all minimal? Um, now is it maximalism? And can I put a chandelier and you'll all feel better about it? Um, I think that what's what's been maybe what's had me off the radar too in a design sense was that and you as a as a as a publisher of a design magazine w will understand this well um a lot of my designs in photographs will not jump out of the page as a wow factor and i've had that told to me by many like editors and people that work in magazines because 
they're more of spaces to me that you kind of need to experience or that they just are calm and don't don't scream or, or somersault in front of you. Um, mm. And that's also because, to use, to paraphrase another bit of a cliche, um, being timeless and being of quality is really important to me personally because I think um, building things is so expensive, constructing things and buying things and buying things that last. I mean, this goes back to what, what everybody's discussing now about, you know, how many clothes do I need? Is this shirt going to last me a long time? Can I wear this winter coat for 20 years? Um, to me, it's the same for interiors. And I think it's sad that so much money can be spent on something. And I think this is where I find a lot of retail design. Um, for me is a bit sad because you'll see something like an amazing store for such as Celine or Dior and they will be completely clad in marble which was taken from the mm. earth and they may last they may last for three years and then somebody will say well that's out of date already we need we need to mm. rip that out and, and move on and you kind of go well that's an incredible material that was made to last for hundreds of years that uh, Greece and Rome and everything was based on and you just want to trash that in the bin now um, mm. whereas for me I think what's nice with residential work is if you can give a client that can have this house for 20 30 50 years maybe it then becomes their children's house I think that's a better product um, mm. but yes it's going to involve investment up front because yes that marble you want to use yes you may want to use solid timber that you have taken from the right source not from you know like a burmese forest um all of these now come at a higher cost and in the age we're living in like right now i can tell you that we're designing a line of wooden products for homes like whether it's a wooden salad bowl or some or, or a breadboard um the price of solid wood is going through the roof because you have to think mm. about where it comes from and although yeah. we all want these things and we want them to last a long time i think we then have to have a respect for how it gets used in the beginning and so for me it's important in the design that we say look we do want this to be this material and trust us it will last longer or it's going to wear in a certain way because then you also have the argument about oh I don't want any marble in my kitchen because I'm going to stain it and I'm like well isn't that patina of life part of the material um mm. it's about it's like we also our skin I mean we're all getting patinaed whether we like it or not it's <laughs> a good um, word I, for it it's 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 <laughs> I'm patinering every day. Um, <laughs> As am I, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like just understanding how how can we not be so wasteful? How can we, which is timelessness. It's like, can I have this mm. cashmere sweater? Can I give this cashmere sweater to my child? Um, I love that kind of ongoing heritage of something, of anything. Mm. And whether that's a teapot, or a sweater or an armchair. I mean, I think we really need to respect that. And and that also means that something has to be of quality. It needs to have, mm. it's probably had a design. I mean, that's why mid-century is still with us now. I mean, and I, I often get depressed about looking at Bauhaus design or mid-century design because it is so fresh still. And you have to say to yourself, 
why is it still fresh? Why is it still valid? And why are we still designing more chairs? So you kind of want to have a reason, like, is there a materiality reason why can we do something in a new, you know, is carbon fiber, was carbon fiber big a few years ago because, you know, it was a new material? Because you really have to start thinking about what is, what is justifiable in our age, really? Mm. And, and it also puts a price on projects because very often you have to look at how things are built and people say, well, gosh, why is this so expensive? Like, why is this contractor so expensive? And you have to think about who are the people on the ground building this thing? I mean, it used to be everybody was an artisan. So the, the man doing the terrazzo floor, that was what the, the family did for years, like from generation to generation. The stone people, that, that's all they did. That was their life. Whereas now I think it's a lot of these careers have been belittled. So you can't even get, no one, no one even cares about the trade anymore. And I think in recent years, the, the craftsmanship has come back. But then that craftsmanship comes at a cost because a, a, a young person will be like, well, I can go and be a doctor or a lawyer or, or do something online or be an influencer or whatever that might be. Um, and I can make a lot of money. Why should mm. I go and be, why should I go and be a bricklayer or, or do stone masonry? I mean, and which well, is why that, that comes at a cost. Someone told me recently that bricklayers in Australia are very hard to find and very well paid, which actually had me thinking a few weeks ago that maybe I should go and do that. <laughs> <laughs> Build something with my hands again. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. I just think there's, we've lost a respect for the craft it takes to make something. And, and now it's like anything. If we want a hand-knitted sweater, it's going to cost us a lot more than a machine-made one. And it's exactly mm. the same for building your house. It's like, do you care about how it is constructed? Do we care about the person that's being paid to do this work? Um, mm. I think it's all about respect. And, and all of that is going to come at a higher price point. So... Mm. I mean, I'm all for design for everybody. And I totally think that uh, very, design should be universal. You know, it should be public buildings need, all spaces need to be considered and designed. I don't think it's a cost thing, but I do think you need to kind of understand the history of construction and where we've come from in terms of how money has been allocated over history to public buildings and 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 buildings and the built environment and and the environment like urban planning and how that affects the way we all live mm. without being on Absolutely. a soapbox about yeah, that yeah no i um, yeah i completely agree and i could probably go down it's the tough tangent, it's I, tough yeah but i think that's probably a good point to to kind of wrap up on it although i feel like I could talk to you for another couple of hours so I just want to say Me thank too. you Albano that was there was a lot of really great points in there and um, thank you for your time today